Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we still talk about RPGs from back in the day and today, still live from the northwest of England, still surrounded by my stuff, representing for the gamers across the world, hitting those criticals with a low roll there. This is the second part of episode 61, which was all about Star Frontiers. Yeah, you shouldn't see this as an extra. You should see it as a glossy module that is indispensable. We have another entry into Appendix G this episode, our very own response to Appendix N, where we are creating a never-ending list of recommendations to inspire your games. This time, we invite long-serving Grog Squad member Wayne Peters to add Jerry Anderson's Space 1999. Also in the room of role-playing rambling is Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, and we've used our library use role to reach down a couple of Star Frontiers adventures from the great library of RPGs to investigate. In this segment, we look at The Dark Side of the Moon by Jim Bambra and Face of the Enemy by Ken Rolson. We were interrupted when we recorded this face-to-face after the first four minutes. We tried again online and were hit by technical gremlins as soon as we started. So we've resorted to a phone call this time. Don't worry, next time we'll get back to normal and we shall be heading for the pub. I'll see you at the end of this one for some parish notices after our closing time chat. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Appendix G. Welcome to Appendix G, the part of the podcast where we invite a specially selected member of the Gog Squad to come on board and add to our ever-expanding list of recommendations. And this time I'm delighted to welcome Wayne, Wayne Peters. Hello there, Wayne. Hello there. I, I thought you added those things in post and didn't realize you did them live. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like I, I I do I do them just to make Blythe laugh. Um <laughs> I, I do it when he's least expecting it. That's the idea. It's good to have you on um Wayne because you're a long time contributor to the stuff that we do you've done art for us along the way and joined in in some of our games so it's good to have you on really quite uh quite nice to be here i know i'm invited you on um because you've got a good recommendation that's fitting with the episode this time but mm. also because you're a, you were a star frontiers player i was i was a long time ago but i was yeah we didn't have um the prime directive like you did but there was a kind of there was a kind of an unspoken kind of thing with our group where or sort of arrangement with our group where if someone ran a game no one else wanted to run it you know everyone wanted to run something different so it was a similar sort of thing i'd already bagged traveler because i bought it off someone uh, a kid in my class who'd obviously had it for christmas i had no idea what to do with it so i had traveler i was running that so my my friend adrian uh fantasy author adrian selby um he uh, he got a copy of star frontiers and he ran it my main main memory of it really is being thoroughly bored doing starship combat because <laughs> it, it because it was because he had the both things he had the what was it the Al- alfred 
Alpha Dawn uh, yeah. role playing game, and then this, the Night Hawks. Was it Night Hawks? The the spaceship combat, yeah, or spaceship rules. Anyway, uh, yeah, my my memory of that is it, it it sort of revolved around the pilot and the gunner, and the rest of us kind of just sat there staring at the smash hits posters on the walls. <laughs> Banana Rama and Annie Lennox, I think, was remember right. Um, I think you it, got the best deal there. I think you got the best deal. <laughs> I did. I, I did like. Um, I did like the setting, though. I've always liked the setting. It's kind of it's it's what well, I haven't played it since the eighties. It's a it's a setting that I've uh, I I sort of come back to again and again because it it's really it's a really kind of rich. What I found was with Traveller, um, whilst it gives you the tools to create an entire galaxy if you want to, Star Frontiers gave you just I think it was about a dozen worlds a dozen star systems and a handful of alien races that you could play just straight out of the box you know and it was it um whereas traveler gave you a handful of chain codes this um actually flashed out flashed out some of the worlds and gave you an actual setting that you could hit the ground running in right and it was a really interesting setting i mean it's helped by you know you had the artwork of um, larry elmore and jeff easley and and the other tsr house artists and that really brought it to life as well so it was uh, a really interesting setting. I don't. I seem to remember not caring for the rules much, though. There's nothing yeah. wrong with them, but just not. Re- they didn't really. Didn't really float my boat. There's, there's not many rules to speak of, really. It's uh, mainly a percentage role for most things, and mm. well, I suppose what it, it, it's very similar um, to uh, Gangbusters, uh, if you ever played that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it has very little. I've never done. I've never done the spaceship combat, so mm. I, I've never given that a try. We we, we always uh, had them planet based. Well, to be fair, we were probably doing it wrong because <laughs> it was so complicated. Uh, yeah, I think you know. Obviously, as as a an, an adult and a seasoned uh, a role player, and I would probably try and make sure that everybody had something to do during the space combat. Whereas back then, it was just well, you just fly about and shoot things, so everybody else gets to just come along for the ride. I, I think it's interesting what you say about the setting because it is the case that it has a bit of a space opera narrative background as well. So the enemies are clearly defined, and mm. that's something that isn't apparent in Traveller, is it? I mean, yeah. there's a there's a setting sort of implied in Traveller, and obviously they fleshed it out into the Spinwood Marches and the rest of the galaxy, and added races in. So the the setting arrived eventually, but it was but as I say, Star Frontiers just came in the box. It was it was there already, and they expanded upon it. But it was there was something there to actually tuck into straight away, and it, it were really interesting alien creatures as well. So I, lo- I loved the Dralocytes, the little blobby characters. They were fa- fabulous. And uh, they've inspired some artwork from you as well, because that's your yes. uh, job, job, isn't it? Uh, it you know, their job, uh, creating models and uh, artwork. So you, they have inspired you, haven't they? They have, yeah. I, I, I did, um, I, as I say, it's a setting I come back to from time to time. It is quite inspiring. So, yeah, I, I did, um, I don't know what you've seen, but there was a Dralocyte illustration and um, uh, a brusque miniature that I sculpted for 3D printing, have on my desk in front of me here. There he is. Oh, there he is. Yeah, great radio. <laughs> <laughs> and um, of course, Star Frontiers was a feature of Imagine Magazine, and I mm. know that Imagine Magazine is a uh, was a big part of your early years of yes. uh, role playing. And uh, you've started a, a, 
a thread on our Discord looking back at uh, issue by issue, month yes. by month. Yeah, so to talk us through that, I, I, what, what, what's your connection with Imagine and uh, what, what's it like going back to it? Well, it was it, it was my magazine of choice because I mean that's it's, it's partly of um, how I got into role playing in the first place. My dad bought it for me, mistake uh, issue twelve, I think it was, um, thinking it was a computer magazine because I was quite I had my Commodore sixty four and I was quite into home computing, and he just thought it was a computer games magazine, and uh, and I I absolutely lapped it up. It was you know you had the Rodney Matthews cover, The Guardian Awakes, and then there's all this just fabulous kind of game related stuff inside and this this thing called Dun- advanced dungeons and dragons it was all fantastic so so yeah i that was i, I just started collecting imagine magazine uh, uh, for no particular reason there was so i used to read white dwarf as well because my, my mates used to get it so i kind of had both but imagine was was the magazine that i bought i can't remember why now but but um that was the one and this is this is something this read through something i've been thinking about for a few years um i started reading through about three or four years ago um, and, I, and then sort of I kind of lost steam on it. But I thought it would be great this year being the 40th anniversary. I could wait till the 50th, but I might not even be here then. So I thought, let's let's do with a, go with the 40th. And, and I thought it'd be great to just month by month read through each issue and just see, just get an, a, a sort of an idea of what the landscape looked like 40 years ago this month kind of thing. Um, how role-playing games were approached. Um, how people kind of muddled through um, some of the issues of the day. Um, I mean, so far we've only looked at issue one, so there's no letters to speak of. But I'm really looking forward to getting into um, the letters in later issues where people start having a discourse back and forth. I know it, they, it gets a bit kind of snarky in a, <laughs> on a, a number of occasions, um, but it's sort of it'll be interesting to see the attitudes that people had towards certain subjects. You know this. Kind of emergence of the the narrative gamer from from you know what was mainly it was gamey sort of games back then wasn't it? you you played it as a as a game not as a, a sort of a storytelling experience so yeah and, and th- it's nice to see it'd be interesting to see things like that emerge in the magazine yeah I I said this before uh, on the podcast with Imagine I always found it. A lot more uh, engaging as a magazine compared with uh, White Dwarf in that it was the first magazine that recognised that there were uh, people actively playing these games out there in the in the mm. in the country, and um, you know you got convention reports and its famous um, fanzine uh, section, and mm. it, that was the first time I got any sense really of the audience. Um, out, out there. It was mainly it was, it's much more um, D and D focused, and it's obviously a TSR house mag, so it's, it's going to be. Um, so that was the that was for me the primary difference between that and White Dwarf. White Dwarf was it felt zappier. It felt kind of more. Uh, I don't know. TSR just felt not dry. That's that's a bit unkind. It was, but it was more. It's it seemed to be more sort of thoughtful and less trying to kind of entertain and and sort of audience please. And then White Dwarf was very kind of, you know, it had the had things like, you know, you'd have Judge Dredd in there and they'd have superhero games. And there was there was more kind of not more exciting stuff, but more there's a lot more variety in it, I suppose, because they were covering a lot more bases. But as as a result, you know, people were constantly complaining that they never covered this or they never covered that. And it's, you know, 
Well, so TSR really didn't have that problem with Imagine because it was largely just Dungeons and Dragons. So there's plenty in every issue. Yeah, and uh, you observed that they featured fiction as well on a regular basis. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, like you, used to uh, be resentful of the pages taken up by the uh, fiction. Yeah, but yeah, I'd, I'd start reading it and just I'd think, oh, what is this? And you know, <laughs> just resentful. I, the thing is, I'm looking forward to reading them now because there's probably some really kind of interesting and thought-provoking ideas in there. Um, I mean, the first the, the, the fiction in the first issue was wasn't great, to be fair. But it was I the, the thing is, it's kind of it was imagining this kind of future VR kind of role playing system. Um, this idea that you would have a a VR-based computer uh, role-playing system in your house. Uh, and then, obviously, the because we have that kind of thing these days, looking back at what they what this guy thought it would be like is it can be quite funny. Um, but, you know, you, you have to kind of give him that. If he, if he could have seen the future, he, he, wouldn't be, he wouldn't be making his money writing books. He'd be, he'd be inventing the technology. So, yeah. 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 I, I think... Um... Every time I read a story in there, I was trying to think, how can I use this? It's, mm. it, it, I just can't make the connection between this and uh, gaming. Um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds over the coming months. Uh, Wayne, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm looking forward now, to getting into it. So what are you offering to put into our long list of recommendations to the Grog Squad? Well, I am offering uh, Space 1999, a science fiction TV series that ran for two seasons between 1976 and 1977. Excellent. I'm going to make uh, an admission. I have okay. never seen Space 1999. I, okay. I was aware of it. I was aware of it. Um, I think I've mentioned previously that I never had control of the um, television when I was at home uh, apart from on a Saturday morning when I used to watch uh, Tiswas and Swap Shop but um, I never really saw these uh, space operas uh, as, they, as they played mm. out so so what's the pitch for Space 1999? The, the sort of the core concept of it is set up in the first episode really you've got um, uh, Commander Koenig uh, played by uh, Martin Landau arrives on Moonbase Alpha uh, which is a sort of a, it's an established um, moon base with an, uh, about the size of a small town with an international um, crew, it's a completely international crew, and they're getting uh, ready to for a, the first manned mission to the newly discovered planet Meta. Um, but unfortunately, Commander Koenig finds the base in disarray because uh, Alphans have been contracting a space madness and dying, which is causing some dismay. Now, this, apparently this space madness has been caused by magnetic radiation that's building up around the old nuclear dumps. Before anything can be done about this, the nuclear dumps explode, and, it, and it, with a nuclear explosion so vast, so massive, it sends the moon hurtling off out of our solar system and off uh, uh, on, its, uh, on its adventures. With the Earth in disarray because of, the obviously, the atmospheric chaos caused by having no moon, um, they can't mount a rescue operation. and as a sheer coincidence the moon is on a direct heading for the planet meta so commander koenig decides that that's where their destiny lies and that's where they'll find find their fate uh, and off they set um 
Um, interestingly, the planet Meta is never, ever mentioned again in the show, show's entire run. Uh, they completely forget about it. Um, but what you, so what you essentially have then is Earth's moon traveling through space, um, apparently fast enough to reach new star systems within a few days, but passing by those star systems slow enough for they can have several um, sort of shuttle journeys between the moon and this new planet before it event and adventures and then before it gradually then passes on. Uh, so, so the structure is essentially uh, a planet a week, is it? Is that the idea that they visit Mostly, a new system yeah. each week? You have um, you occasionally have uh, alien spaceships or rock up on the moon. Um, they'll just be they'll just be on their way through deep space, and an alien spaceship will show up. Uh, Christopher Lee shows up in one as Captain Xantor, um, which was a, a, actually there was a series of dolls uh, in the seventies uh, of Space Nineteen Ninety Nine characters, and Captain Xantor was one of them. My friend had him. I was really jealous, but it, it kind of the thing is it's essentially Christopher Lee in heavy eyeshadow. And that was that was um, one of the, the shortcomings of the show was they spent an absolute fortune on the sets and the model work and the production values, and it, it really was it was movie quality effects and and camera work on a on, you know on a weekly TV show, but with all that money spent on that, they had very little left for sort of guest stars and um, sort of uh, alien makeup and I mean they they got through. But it did. Uh, it kind of showed at showed at the seams quite quite often. Yes, uh, and quite often they'd run into aliens that were essentially just sort of points of light that would float around, you know, because that was essentially all they could afford. So, yeah. So, so you had Martin Landu, and was there a crew as well, a cast of characters to support yes. it? There was um, Prentice Hancock, who showed up a lot in sort of seventies uh, TV. Um, he showed up in Doctor Who and a few other things as well, usually as a shouty character. But he was he was Paul. I remember thinking he was the coolest guy ever when I was when I was little. I think now my favourite character is um, is uh, Alan Carter, the Eagle pilot. The senior Merton as Sandra Baines as well is uh, is a really fun character. Uh, so it's, I actually I, I honestly actually prefer the supporting cast to the the two the two principal characters. Uh, I just found them more interesting, really. So, so you mentioned the eagle, and that's the thing I remember from it because all the kids at school yeah. had the eagle uh, dinky toy. Um, so th is that that's the shuttle that takes them to diff on different adventures, is it? Yes, that was. I mean, that's that's what I think most people love about the show is the eagle transporter. It was one of the stars of the show, I think, and the model work on it was absolutely phenomenal. I think it was designed by Joe Johnson. I think he went on to to work on um, Star Wars. Um, but yes, that's uh, quite often uh, you go to fan sites, and and that's that's the main thing there is the Eagle Transporter. When we pick these um, for Appendix G, it's mainly to think about how we can use them for uh, games. So, uh, have you used this as an inspiration of games, or how how would you use it, and how does it fit with uh, gaming? Well, it's something I've had on a back burner for. Um, probably a couple of decades. I've been wanting to run a Space 1999 game for a long, long time. And I, I, I think I've gone through numerous sort of rule systems. And originally it was Classic Traveller, I think. And I went through Star Wars D6 and Savage Worlds and uh, uh, the, the old Last Unicorn game, Star Trek as well. And I actually finally, finally ran a game. Um, I think it was for Virtual 
Albert and Wizard staff last last year. A point the game was a bit of a damp squib, unfortunately. The scenario I wrote was a, a bit too linear, and I've messed up the the boss fight at the end as well. So it was a bit of an anti climax, sadly. But uh, the actual the game itself, I actually used in the end. I used Star Trek Adventures, the Modifia Star Trek Adventures, because I I I figured that. Um, that it would map onto Space 1999 effortlessly, really. And it did. It worked really well because you've got... It's a very similar setup, although the difference being whereas the, the crew of the Enterprise can can pilot the, the, uh, the Starship Enterprise wherever they want to go, the moon just takes the Alphans to the situation and they have to deal with it. And that in itself can be quite interesting to use uh, in a campaign in the, in the sense that they can't just nuke it from orbit or fly away. The, the, the trouble comes at them and they've got to deal with it before the, the moon uh, shifts on again. So, yeah, you've got stun guns for phasers. You've got comm locks for communicators. You've got the, the various departments um, are similar to Star Trek in that you have these, the, these wonderful kind of um, these uniforms designed by, I think it was Rudy Gernrich, a fashion designer in the 70s. Uh, Sylvia Anson apparently was chummy with him and got him to design this uh, the, the the uniform for the elephants, and so you've got this beige kind of two piece sort of top and trousers with one coloured arm uh, to denote the department in the same way that Star Trek has the red, yellow, and blue uh, tops. So it all works. It all it all fits over Star Trek effortlessly. So that would that worked really well, um, and I think that was that was what I would uh, if I were to run it again I'd like to run it again because like I said I was disappointed with with the way the game went and the players were fabulous they're a great bunch but uh, I was just disappointed with the way the game ran and uh, so I would I would really like to do it again but I think something that occurred to me though afterwards was the the show itself is is um is sort of it's a show of two halves really you've got a first and second season and the first season is very much inspired by kind of early pre-Star Wars cerebral sci-fi, 2001 A Space Odyssey mainly, things like Silent Running and that kind of thing. And it's all very portentous and kind of doom-laden and there's this sense of, you know, of um, uh, sense of kind of, yeah, it's sort of pervasive, pervasive sense of doom. Whereas the second season um, was overseen by a guy called Fred Freiberger who had worked on Star Trek The Animated Show um, and wanted it more zappy, wanted a younger cast. He binned a lot of the cast from the first series and replaced them with a cast that, to my, to my eyes, looked the same age as the ones he got rid of, but he insisted they were a younger cast, and he wanted to be zappy, and he gave them these multicoloured safari jackets to wear over their uniforms, and it all became a lot more pulp and adventurous. But as, so, as I say, it's a very different feel, and I, I often wonder if, for the first season, whether something like Call of Cthulhu might actually work quite well, if only because players, if you if you say right, we're going to run, we're going to play Space 1999, but I'm going to use Call of Cthulhu, and I think the players would go into it if they know Call of Cthulhu, would go into it expecting this kind of sense of of doom and this you know just expecting their characters to go mad and die and being okay with that, you know, so that might that might work quite well for atmosphere or sort of player expectations maybe. But, uh, but yeah, as as myself, I I, I think Star Trek Star Trek Adventures because it's a two D twenty is a system I really like anyway. It took me a long time to to really take to it, but I I do really like it. Now. I think it was I think it was Conan that sold me on it ultimately 
so it's a system I like, and as I say it works, it, it maps onto Space 1999 really easily. So, and uh, coming back to what you were saying earlier about the uh, Starship combat, it is one where everyone can feel part of building up momentum uh, as part of the mm. ship's crew. Yeah, something Star Trek Adventures does really well. You know, it, it's a, it, it really is. It's, everybody has something to do, and there's every uh, this this something for everybody to do as well. It's a nice thing with it. It actually gives examples of what each department can be doing during space battle. So even if you can't think of anything at that moment, um, you've got a menu you can choose from. So it, it's, you know, there's never a point where your character should be saying or needs to be saying, saying, oh, I don't know, I'll just look at the screen. Or Bananarama, the bedroom <laughs> wall. Yeah. Thank you, Wayne. That'll go on to the Appendix G. And, um, of course, you'll be swimming in the grub tank with your continuing rereading, imagine. So I look forward yes. to that. Yes, looking forward to that, definitely. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Wayne. Yeah, no worries, no worries. That's been... Library use. Welcome to the uh, Zoom of role-playing rambling. I've got Blythe on the other end of the phone. Hello there, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Calling in from your bunker to my bunker. We've had to do this. Uh, twice, haven't we? Yeah, we have. This is the second time. This is the third time, actually. We just had technical gremlins. And the first time we tried to do this last week, we were interrupted by Phil, the IT guy, weren't we? Phil, the IT guy, came in the cupboard with a computer um, on a trolley, which he then proceeded to set up and install. And he tried to engage us with cable tie chat. I think he's prime suspect, you know, for drinking that summer fruits cordial. Yeah, well, I wonder, I wonder whether, I mean, we were in there recording a podcast and he walked in and we had to then pretend we weren't recording a podcast and just pretend we were having a brew and a chat. Uh, but he came in. I wonder if he came in to have some of the summer fruits and a bit of a, put his feet up and the, the, the computer's just a bit of a ruse, you know, it pushes around in a trolley. You see him a lot, don't you? Pushing computers around on the trolley. What's he doing? Where's he going? Like some hospital porter for a computer, pushing it around in its sick bed. And I think he'd come in to have some summer fruits. We were there. Then he had to go through the rigmarole of setting the computer up. All I wanted was a glass of summer fruits, a glass of out-of-date summer fruits. That's all I wanted. And the uh, tide mark a little lower on the summer fruits as yes. it ever evaporates. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> enough of this. Library use is when we reach down in the great library of RPGs and pull a couple of items off the shelf for a deep discussion i was going to say deep and detailed discussion but it might not we're going to try and avoid spoilers as much as we can but inevitably we're going to uh, ruin a couple of these adventures that we're going to look at but my starting point for all of this as you know is heroic worlds a history and guide to role-playing games by lauren stick and you know who lauren stick is don't you he wrote staff and tears i believe he did yeah and you know that because i've asked you three times you asked. I was uh, going to say I only know that because you asked me three times. The first time you asked me, just before Phil walked in, I wasn't so sure. But now I know it's him because we've done it three times. <laughs> I can answer that with confidence. He wrote stuff and tears. <laughs> he did. He did. It was the original design. He worked for uh, TSR, and he was the editor of Deities and Demigods. And it, if you remember from the interview with uh, Ben Miggs, he pointed out that he was most but out by the fight that uh, the royalty situation on Star Frontiers. Now, 
In this book, it is a catalogue and it has different inputs from different games designers of that period in 1991 when it came out. But I want to read to you the beginning of the entry of Star Frontiers. Okay. Science fiction system with an introductory level rules. The systems were originally designed for players age 14 and up and then heavily reside without playtesting for younger players resulting in some very muddled rules. It's not that he's bitter or anything. It's no <laughs> bitterness there, isn't it? Yeah. Is that, is that the only entry in the whole book where he's actually quite critical of the game? I think earlier on, he just said that um, it was done by design by committee. I suppose oh. giving a sense how things were changing at TSR at the time that Star Frontiers came out, but a bit of an undercurrent there. But it is a great book, this. I know that. Some people say, oh, well, it's a bit out of date now and you should turn to the internet. But I I think it's uh, frozen in time. In 1991, it gives you an unvarnished look at the games when we went into deep freeze. Yeah, it's of its time, isn't it? So it's it's as, as perceived then rather than updated and altered with the last 20 or 30 odd years. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like it was frozen with us, this book. Like a relic from... From Tutankhamun's tomb, it's been exactly. on Earth with us, brought back to life. This was found. Yeah, clinging on to it. It does make the distinction because obviously science fiction is a broad category, and he determines that what we're talking about here when we traveller, it's actually science fiction adventure. So its characteristics are interstellar travel, alien species, all the weird and wonderful stuff with that, new planets. Robots and ray guns. Yeah. That's fair enough, isn't it? It is yeah. a very yeah. distinct. It's distinctive from like dark future stuff, like aftermath and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's definitely shiny spaceships and sliding doors and yeah, laser blasters and that kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. And owing a debt to those science fiction serials that were on at the cinema um, back in the 30s, I guess, on the TV with um, Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, and and I suppose those of the seventies as well. There were, there were things like that knocking around seventies, weren't there? I mean, book, I know the book Rogers is a sore point, isn't it? Obviously. So I'm going to um, from this book. I'm going to do a prefab sprite game. Okay, so if you remember why this works, I've got. I remember I've got here. I've got five adventures that I plucked from this list for various games, and uh, there's one ringer in there, one that I've made up. What you've got to do is listen to them. You can play this at home. Well, you are playing it at home, as we always say, but people who are listening can play it as well. Let's see. I am I am playing it at home, but other people can as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, see if you can spot the ringo here. Are you ready? No, I've got to spot, okay. the, I've got to spot the duff one, like the one that isn't real, haven't I? Just, just the one I've it. made people up. People are playing at home. Get the rules right. As a rules lawyer, get the rules right. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the one that you've made up. Okay, yeah. go on. Okay. First one. No. Lost telepaths. The secrets of the House of Kashmir. Lost telepaths. The secrets of the House of Kashmir. How does that sound? That, sounds, you, dubious. that sounds dubious. I mean, okay. lost telepaths. Lost telepaths is okay. But the House of Kashmir? It sounds like something you find in a, a, one of those shops that sells wool or something. House yeah. of Cashmere. You know, like a picture of yeah. a young Roger Moore in a cardigan on the front. 
Welcome to the House of Kashmir. Yeah, for all your woman needs. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's your House of Kashmir. That sounds well. I'm, I'm immediately, I'm immediately suspicious of that one. But I know, I know the game. Deck. I know the, I, but I know the game you play. I know the game you play. Is your double bluff in the House of Kashmir? Sounds stupid. So, but that's what you do. I know what you do. You put that in yeah. deliberately to throw me off the scent. So continue. Okay, that's on the doubtful pile then, yeah? Okay. Well, I don't know if it is on the doubtful pile, because I think you just do, House of Kashmir, you'll have seen that and thought, oh, House of Kashmir, <laughs> that sounds rubbish, you'll fall for that. So it's, I don't know if it is on the doubtful pile, but anyway, go on. Satellite Riders, Operation Murdoch. Satellite Riders, Operation Murdoch. <laughs> Operation Murdoch? Well, that sounds made up. That's just something you make up. But then, yeah, but, Sky, Sky, maybe, yeah, a bit of bit of kind of politics, bit of parody there, a bit of... Uh... Darthanian Queen. Darthanian Queen. Darthanian Queen. Darthanian Queen. What are these again? They're uh, science fiction adventures, as listed in Heroic Worlds, a history and guide to role-playing Not games. Not for Star Frontiers, just for any... No, no, for, just for, for any, yeah. Darthanian, Darthanian Queen. Queen. For different games, or the same game. No, they're all different games. Yeah. Different games. Right, okay. Yeah. All right, go on. Right. Mm-hmm. Operation Paraguin. Quanchinant Conspiracy. The Quanchinant Conspiracy. Operation Paraguin. The Quanchinant Conspiracy. So far. They're good these, aren't they? I, would, they, they? I would never describe them as good, but I, they're certainly difficult to tease out an obvious contender to be made up. I mean, I know they're all made up because I was really made up, but one you've made up, if you know what I mean. Okay, last one on. is Rotten to the Core. Rotten to the Core. So, yeah. which of those uh, is the ringer? So, talk me through that. Through them, which, which ones are you going for? Initially, I would have I thought the House of Kashmir was sounded ridiculous, but I think Satellite Riders and Murdoch thing. But then I don't know. You see, that might be plausible because that is—is is that someone doing a bit of satire? Going they're, taken, they're all taken from that book, aren't they? All taken from this book, 1991. Hero at Worlds: A History and Guide mm. to Role Playing Games by yeah, Lawrence yeah. Stick. Is it sticking yet? 1991 yeah. satellite TV was that just coming in in 1991, or was it later than 91? Yeah. So would would someone have thought, oh, this is this is very funny? Because Murdoch Sky and Satellite TV. Maybe that's a bit of parody, attempt at parody. Darthanian Queen. <laughs> it just seems. I don't know. It's just wrong about the name, Darthanian Queen. No. So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm wondering if Darthanian Queen. What was the fourth one? I think Rotten to the Course seems okay. I can imagine. Operation Peregrine. Yeah, Operation Oper- Peregrine. <laughs> Don't make me say that word again. I, I won't say peregrine. As in peregrine, <laughs> peregrine. As in like a peregrine, peregrine. Fal- falcon. Yeah, and and it's got a, a subtitle. The uh, I might not have might not say this the same way as I said it previously. The quantinchunt conspiracy. Mm. Quantinchunt conspiracy. Right. I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Go on. I'm gonna have to push you on this. You're gonna have to push me on it. I'm going to say Darthanian Queen. 
Only because if it's not made up by you, it should be. I'm going to, I'm going to Dar- go on that basis. Darthanian Queen. Queen. Yeah. Darthanian Queen was a supplement for Traveller created by the Judges Guild. You know those ones? Those little, yeah, 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 for Traveller. Never heard of never yeah. heard of it. A subsidised merchant uh, craft with uh, three scenarios. And it included one that had a, a monster on board. The Lost Telepaths, The Secrets of the House of Kashmir. The House of Kashmir. Um, that was actually Space, <laughs> Space Master. So, you know, the derivative of um, uh, Role Master. Oh, oh yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Operation Peregrine, the Quinchichichichichin conspiracy. You can tell that I haven't made that up because I can't, I'd have chosen a word I could Say yeah, it, at he least. Chose a word. I did think that. He ch- he just, although, no, it's you, isn't it? I mean, we're both guilty of overcomplicating a name. Yeah. Space Opera, Fantasy Games Unlimited, which I always coveted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've got a copy of it now, and I, I, I need to feel ready um, to play that game. But I, I, I do, I do think that at some point I will, uh, I will play that game. I used to have it in Odyssey Seven, and I used to look at it every, and, and I just thought, this is my way of getting into the traveller space um, yeah. without breaking the Prime Directive. But anyway, yeah, uh, Space Opera uh, FGU. Although I'd have to change the Quanchy Nunch. Uh, yeah, you'd have to change that because I, I, I can't say it. Anyway, and Rotten to the Core is a, a GDW Traveller uh, yeah, 2300. Yeah. And the one I made up was, you, you were feeling it, weren't you? Satellite Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I kind it, of felt. It, I just thought Dathanian Queen said it. The thing with Dathanian well, Queen, I thought, you're making a science fiction supplement or adventure, and you've used the word Darth, Darth, and Darth Vader seemed seemed that you would immediately go if you were writing that and you thought Darthanian Queen you'd look at it and go oh I start like Darth Vader I'll change that because it's like Darth Vader well, it doesn't seem right you know it doesn't, doesn't quite fit do you know what I mean that's why it seemed implausible but, I yeah. was uh, r- I was riffing off the um, Sky Raiders do you remember the Sky Raiders and um, series Fassa. Uh, brought out oh, yeah, yeah. Ga- Games Workshop distributed didn't they? I'm pretty sure that we played those, we, didn't we? We played that. We might we talk. Did. Yeah. We played yeah. That, yeah. They, they were beige, weren't they, rather than black, the books that, that, were uh, were beige with like pencil kind of uh, illustrations. They seemed a bit more exciting than travel stuff because they did have illustrations. <laughs> Last time we were ruminating on the Ian Livingston statement that actually he preferred fantasy adventures to fantasy films and science fiction films to uh, science fiction adventures. And I was saying, well, I I like uh, science fiction adventures. I think that there's more to them. There's more breadth and scope than for medieval settings and uh, adventures. There is, and I suppose there is. Yeah, there is. Last time you said it's very, very hard to do science fiction well because uh, it puts more onus on the games master to describe and look at the world and everybody as usual everybody agreed with you well it's because it's true i can see that that bit's true but i'm going to have another go at trying to argue that out of all the scenarios that have been published and produced i think the strongest ones are usually ones that are either in a contemporary espionage setting 
or they're in a science fiction setting. I just think it gives the writer and the players a lot more scope. Than well, I think for I, I would I would agree with you. I, I don't think we'd disagree, though, are we, on it? Because I think right. that I, I think that you're right. They are more. There is more scope in a science fiction scenario. And we've found that there's there's all these planets that in traveler games that you can go to. And some of them can be quite primitive. Some of them can be very high tech. So you can do, you know, you can do, yeah, crash on a planet, got to survive. It's primitive. The people there are primitive and it, it's not very safe. It's not very high tech. And then you can go to the extreme, can't you? You can do all sorts of things with sci-fi. So I don't think it's that they're not, it's not that, it's not that they're not flexible and you can do more with them. You probably can, can't you? Because as you say, a fantasy setting kind of straight jacketed to some extent into that world aren't you i mean my that, that, is just, it's difficult it's perhaps because of that flexibility it becomes difficult it's more of a challenge to create atmosphere and create the setting detail and that kind of thing that that's what can be difficult i think but it's what i'd say that so, what i'd say is because um, there is a tradition, isn't there? There's a tradition and a repertoire of television series and films that mm. are in this science fiction adventure setting. You don't have that in fantasy, do you? Uh, it's only relatively recently that they've started to build up, arguably since the success of Lord of the Rings, that mm. you start to get serials that are more fantasy orientated because prior to that you probably got um, serial adaptations of uh, Conan and things like that but it is relatively new isn't it the uh, the fantasy film and tv series whereas you have got a wealth of stuff to draw on when it comes yeah. to science fiction and that and that is also one of the ways you do it isn't it when when we run sci-fi you do you do sort of say right this is a bit like Blake Seven this is a bit Star Trek you know this is a bit you do you kind of refer to those films that, that you've seen so yeah you do do that let's um, put a couple of these uh, adventures off the shelf now with them um, th- th- at this period when it came out I think this was a peak of a new age of writing about new age of writing adventures for um, role-playing and there were some really good proponents of game design and adventure design a lot of them were working in uh, Star Frontiers so you've got um, like the early ones were done by uh, Mold Ray and uh, Mark Akers who were doing stuff for uh, gangbusters but the ones that we're going to look at they have Ken Rolson and Jim Bambra, and Jim Bambra obviously went on to work for Games Workshop and produce uh, The Enemy Within campaign, amongst other things. So there were really good writers working on Star Frontiers. I think it, it benefits from that. So um, we're each going to have a look at an adventure each. So which one have you got? I've got Face of the Enemy. That's like Ken Rolson. And I'm going to look at Dark Side of the Moon by Jim Bambra. Mm. And it, we could have picked any really from from these because it, it they're an interesting collection i think the star frontiers ones and they are available on the drive through rpg and they did have um tie-ins as well was um uh 2001 <laughs> sorry imagine that as a... well it's from mad computer mad computer is quite a good sci-fi sort of role-playing thing isn't it but i'm not sure the rest of it mm, interesting yeah glad to read that I think it was notable because of its um, deck plans. I think that was yeah. its main attraction. 
it didn't look anything like the rest of the uh, Star Frontiers collection. Well, I would imagine, yeah, if it's based on truth, that doesn't quite fit with the Star Frontiers kind of model, does it? As, as we were saying earlier, what Star Frontiers is all about is ray guns and silver suits, and so it's not quite 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah, it says here, featuring the spaceship Discovery and the computer HAL 9000, includes new skills and a large map of the Discovery. Let's start with you then. Let's have a look at uh, what you've got there. Face of the enemy. Uh, yes. So what's what, what's the pitch? What's what's the what's the convention pitch? Why would I sign up to this game? Come on. Well, I suppose the pitch is that this this adventure is about literally getting to grips with the Sathar, who are the, who are the villains of Star Frontiers, aren't these kind of worm like evil worm like aliens who want to take over the universe? In direct conflict with the rest yeah. and human uh, civilizations, aren't they? The rest of the yeah. pangolins, yeah. think. But but, but 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 of course, what what they do is they they in the games they tend to use the other races against each other, don't they? So they tend to employ agents, don't they, rather than deal with it um, themselves. So this adventure is all about ultimately all of it. No, it doesn't quite start off that way, but it's ultimately about capturing one of the Sathar because they've, they've never been captured. They, they have a kind of um, suicide switch in them, so they kind of die when they get captured. But this adventure, without without too many spoilers, there's a little, there's something that you discover about the Sathar, which means you can kind of get around that, potentially. That, so that's the pitch, I think. It's to, to catch a Sathar, really. That's what it's really about as an adventure. But that's kind of at the, the end, because it is in three, it is in three acts. They're quite interesting. I was quite impressed by it, actually. I must admit. You know, you get to look at these old things. We've looked at we've looked at a lot of old things on this <laughs> this podcast. And often yeah. we, we find them wanting, don't we, by comparison to modern games or modern um, scenarios. But it's it's very good actually. I was quite impressed. I I, lo- I looked at it and thought you could whilst you might not want to run it for Star Frontiers, but if you were doing a, another, if you were doing a travel campaign or something like that, you could build this in, and it would stand. It would stand, stand up. You know, it would stand up, and it would work even now because it's quite cleverly put together, I think. And I suppose it stands at odds a bit with the D and D, even though it's like TSR. So people say, "Ah, oh, yeah, Star Frontiers. It's like D and D in space, isn't it?" There you go. That's D and D in space. D and D with laser guns because it's TSR. But this adventure is not not really like the D and D adventures of the time in many ways. It's it's got a bit more subtlety to it. I think it starts off where you have to go to a planet with a primitive race on this planet who've only encountered they've had an encounter with the Sathar, and it's not gone well because of course the Sathar are evil worms who want to take over the universe. But it's not gone well. You have to go there. And there's like language barriers and cultural barriers and things like that. And the first act is you have to negotiate and befriend these this alien race, primitive alien race. And it's interesting because it's not it's not fighty, you know. It's not like D and D. It's not like oh, there's a tribe of orcs right over the hill. Go and kill them all and take their treasure and save the village. You know that is not like that at all. These primitive aliens, you have to befriend them and talk to them and communicate with them. And it makes quite a big deal about communication you know like the idea of drawing pictures and things like that where you can't speak to them you have to work out what's gone on on this planet um 
and the experience point awards. Uh, you get more experience points for peaceful negotiation and you get far less if it all goes pear-shaped and you end up fighting with them. It does get fighty later on, but the initial bit of it, the first act, is not fighty at all. I've, I've got a copy of it here and I'm just looking at the uh, back of it, the referee uh, briefing. So this is the Notui, is it, that they right, encounter? Yeah. 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 So they're a kind of, uh, for the benefit of uh, listeners, they're kind of a vulture uh, humanoid with very large thighs. No, don't laugh at the thighs. They seem to be um, living on this planet without any predators or any any opposition. And this opposition has been in, invited and they're trying to get their heads around it a little bit, aren't they? The yeah. new threat. And and then the second act is you, you investigate a crashed Sapphire spaceship. And then the third act is you have to then go into the heart a uh, Sathar space station to try and capture one of the Sathars. So it does build up to kind of becoming fighty. But but even going into the space station, your job is to really try and capture one of the Sathar rather than kill them all. That's that's the whole thing. So even that's not quite as straightforward as just going and blow the place up. You know, it's not it's not like a Death Star, you know, oh the space station, go and destroy it. It's you can destroy it afterwards, but the idea is to capture one of these stuff. But I think I think it was quite I was quite impressed actually. Pretty well well thought out, well structured, quite well written, well put together. Like I say, as a structure with these three acts. It's surprisingly concise, isn't it? It's not overwritten. It's campaign mode, isn't it? But there's it's in thirty pages. When you think of I, I'm currently doing uh, that Conan uh, campaign, and that's kind of a thick book, isn't it? But there's yeah. quite a lot of material in here, isn't there, for a few pages, including the deck plans to this um, Sather spaceship, yeah. which you uh, have to explore. Quite a lot packed into it. Yeah, there is. There's a lot. There's a lot in it. It's just, it, it, it's a shame as well, in as much as I'm not sure it would necessarily work as a one shot. Because when I was reading it, I thought. Hey, Good, this is a one shot, wouldn't it? A convention, but I'm not sure it would work as a one shot because it does have those three acts. And, and in a way, the fun of it is almost front loaded that the negotiation bit is the most fun. The pain, yes, yeah, yeah, you, you get a big fight at the end, but you've got to do all this other stuff, you know. And I'm not sure that would work as a one shot, but it's, it's the same because it's, it's all right, good. There is a risk with these modules, they are appealing as one shots as in doing them as a convention-type environment. I did it with um, a couple of these. I'm going to talk about uh, Dark Side of the Moon, which you played. Um, but I also did it with um, Bugs in the System at the last uh, Grog Me. And that is a scenario that's in two acts. And the first act uh, is essentially uh, exploring this uh, paralysed spaceship. And it's... Very distinctively spaceship because it's inside a balloon and it's got a floating um, ice and ball that's attached to it. And there's these shuttle crafts that go in between and it's mining these minerals and there's been no reason. Anyway, there's load, loads to it. And essentially, it's a floating dungeon. So that's the first half of it. Yet the second half is more interesting when you return to the main base and things start occurring. And uh, people start disappearing. Th- things, uh, incidents start happening. And when you're making a, when you're turning one of these into a one shot, you have to choose the point. Right? That is right. What's going to work best in a self-contained 
period. And I made the wrong choice because I went for the first part rather than the second part. That is the problem. You, you look at it and think, well, I can't fit it all in, so I've got to fit a particular bit in, but am I picking the right bit? That problem as well, isn't it, that in your head as a gaming master, you think, yeah, yeah, this will work. And then when it when it gets players get contact with it, you think, oh, would have been the other bit would have been better, really, with this group of players. But you don't know that till it's too late, do you? There was an appeal of going through the arduous, as I say, floating dungeon spacecraft and discovering what was on board there and then coming back and seeing what a pernicious impact it had on the uh, main base whilst you were away. I was concerned whether you would get that same feeling if in a one shot you just turned up and had a backstory that explained that you just come from the abandoned space station. So, yeah. yeah. Bit more success in turning uh, Dark Side of the Moon by Jim Bamber into a convention uh, one shot. This is, it's, it is, really, I cannot underestimate how good this is. I mean, people say, oh, well, you know, compared with modern stuff. I think it, it stands up today. If this was released for Coriolis or some other game that's relevant today, people would say, it's really strong because the central premise of it is very intelligently constructed and I think what it gives it an advantage is the way that it's written there is a lot of backstory to it but it's revealed to the players and there's a lot of incident in it and a lot of points of uh, connection for the players understand what's going on so go on what's what's the pitch with this come on what's your convention pitch with this Crater is uh, a human colony, uh, so it's a fairly desolate planet, but it's been commercialised by the Vrusk. So the Vrusk have come along, the insect uh, type race, and they've, they've kind of inspired the human colony into being more industrious and organised, as Vrusk would be, into turning this uh, crater into a, a very productive uh, mining planet. However, that is bred resentment from the uh, some of the human population, and there is a growing, a growing movement called the KLC, the Crater Liberation Corps, and they're masterminded by this scientist known as Jack Larange, and Jack Larange is the secret puppet master who is uh, arranging for. Uh, terrorist acts against the Vrusk and um, various schemes and plot to undermine their role on the planet because he wants to restore the agrarian economy of the uh, human settlement that was there previously. So that's like the core behind it. Not not D and D in space, then. It is not D and D in space. No, funny thing about it, both adventures is peculiar in that sense because the the game itself and there is there is laser guns and all that, of course there is, but the game itself lent and sort of suggests ah this is just going to be fight the bad guys, blow holes in things and all that. Whilst there is some of that, the both adventures are quite have some subtlety to them, don't they? You know, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, there's a real appeal to this uh, Dark Side of the Moon scenario because this uh, Jack Larange character who's 
he's almost like an Elon Musk figure. So he's like part scientist, part entrepreneur, part industrialist. Could you say that he was evil or is he just morally aloof and the ends justify the means kind of thing? So, you know, his, his idea, ideology is unclear. And part of the how it works, this scenario, is there's a bit of a sandbox element in the middle of it. And all the different competing commercial houses of the Rusk have a different attitude towards Larange. And as player characters, you have to negotiate, negotiate your way through it. And ultimately, his plan is evil. And it's uncovering that evil scheme that he wants to ethnically cleanse the Rusk. And he has a, a, you know, ultimately has a, a genocide plan uh, to do that. Um, but yeah, it's very it's very subtle and very um, cleverly constructed for you to discover that as you're going through it. Last time we talked about it, it's, it's a good game, and the scenarios are good. Yeah, surprising, surprising. I think. I mean, it does have a following, doesn't it? it does have a following, but I suppose it's not one of those games that necessarily springs to mind if you think of a great game from the past. But I'd say it is both in terms of the game and in terms of the stuff that there is for it, the adventures that there is for it. Yeah, I think I think mechanically, Shtick is probably right to complain that it is a bit muddled and it doesn't work, as we pointed out last time. But I just think the quality of the material that we've produced, and yeah. I just think at this time, um, it's a bit overlooked how strong stuff was because you know, gangbusters we said the same thing didn't we the module it was the modules that were the real core strength behind it and really gave you material that is written in a sophisticated way the game rules are, are muddled but i don't think they're any they're no worse than and they're no worse and in some respects better than a lot of stuff in that period I think you'd have to say you have to put that on record that it's not it's not a terrible. We talked about this last time, and I'm repeating myself, but not a terrible game system. But you're right; the uh, the scenarios are are excellent. And I'm reading that face of the enemy. I, I was reading it, thinking, hmm, I'm going to file this under. You know, I'm going to file this away somewhere because there could come a point where I could, could use this. Well, let's put those uh, back on the uh, shelf. I'm going to uh, I'm going to have a look at. Uh, Face of the enemy, I think it can become a convention one-shot with a bit of work. I think all of these can. It's just, as I say, finding the core of it. Thanks, Blythe. I'll get me caught! Welcome back to the Zoom of Roleplay and Rambling. I've got Blythe with me. And we're heading towards the door with our courts on. Still extending the chat. A bit of closing time chatter. I went to see the D&D film, oh, yeah. Honour Amongst Thieves. Yeah, You haven't been yet, have you? I've not been to see it, I, I suspect, because of various work pressures at the moment, which is quite difficult <laughs> to find the time. Um, well, and I, know, and I know as a gamer, apparently you've got to have an opinion on it, haven't you? You've got to, you for have, some reason. Yeah, you have, but it's not. I mean, I will I will watch it at some point. I will watch it. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to watching it. But it's not, it's not, it's not a game, is it? 
It's, not, it's a film. It's, it's not, not a game. It's not a game. It's, it's a film about you know, <laughs> the game, but it's not a game. But non non gamers who you know mm. um, ask you, don't they? Oh, have you seen yeah. the D and D film? Then you got yeah. got to have a view on it. Well, my all my family have said, "Oh, you must watch that. You must watch that. You like D and D? You must watch that, mustn't you?" Then I'm saying that I will at some point. They, they seem more keen on me watching it than I'm keen than I am. <laughs> so people are saying, "Have you not seen it?" But people who don't like you say, "People who don't play it." I said, "Have you not seen it yet?" Oh, I thought you'd be first in the queue for that. Well, not really, no, because it's not a game. <laughs> It's a film about a game. It'll be interesting to watch, but it's not a game. I like playing the game, not watching the film. Do you want to write down these opinions then? I'm not going to give any spoilers because you'll enjoy watching it. But when you're next asked... Yeah, I will enjoy it. I, I'm, expecting, I'm expecting to enjoy it, but at the same time, I will go with a certain attitude that will help me enjoy it. In, in, in as much as I'll be thinking, I kind of know what to expect. But that and it's it's okay for it to be the way I'm expecting it to be. Do you see what I mean? You know, I have some presupp- I have some kind of presuppositions about it that will help me enjoy it. What I'd say about it is that it has got the D and D feels. You always say, don't you? When we did uh, Dragon Heist, there's something weird about the Forgotten Realm setting. There's something weird about having uh, a wizard. Uh, living next door to a dragonborn who uh, has a tiefling as a, uh, I don't know, as a, as a friend. It, that kind of world where uh, there's strange disparities between people living together in uh, uh, yeah. different levels of power and different levels of strangeness, I guess. And it, it does capture that to some extent. Um, it's like a bit, it, uh, the way I describe it, it's, it's like going to a D&D theme park <laughs> yeah yeah and i suppose that's what i mean by my presuppositions about it. I, i'm expecting it to be like that and i'm not bothered that it's like that so i'll probably enjoy it when i watch it because i'm going to it thinking it'll be yeah almost thinking it'll be like a D and theme park that's what i'm expecting it to be like so don't expect because the the pleasure comes from seeing like little nods and winks to people who play the games. Because yeah. quite a lot of those kind of little in jokes, and seeing the monsters, you know, seeing the monsters uh, displayed on the on, on the screen uh, mm. is good. But yeah, a mi- mid-ranking theme park. It's not quite Happy Mount Park in Morecambe, but it's not quite <laughs> the Magic <laughs> Kingdom. Bad. It's not quite a Disneyland, but it's not off in Mount Parking Mall. Is it, is it Alton Towers? Yeah, it's, it's mid-range. Alton Towers standard. Mid-range team for Alton Towers. Yeah, all right. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. That's kind of what I would expect it to be, yeah. It's committed to what it's doing, and I think that's always a good thing, isn't it? The performances are good. I think the standout is Hugh Grant, because he revives his uh, yeah. character from Paddington 2. With, with all these films, that is actually the issue, isn't it? The commitment of the people making it and the cast. So it, that sometimes shines through or or either way, you know, it either comes through that they're not very committed to it or it comes through that they are committed to it. And it does make a difference in terms of the quality of it. So, I mean, yeah. on a similar subject, uh, I watched the, recently watched the, the Last of Us, you know, The Last of Us, The World. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've not got around to watching that yet. 
um, which is is excellent. Is excellent. I really enjoyed it. Um, and that's based on a video game. And I, I've never played the game. My daughter into the game. She wanted to watch it. She, she's a big fan of the game, and I've never played the game. But if you watch it, you, you can't tell it's based on a game. You wouldn't go, this is based on a game, even though my daughter watching it said, oh, yeah, that, that bit's in the game, that bit's in the game, that bit's in the game. But they've altered it and done things to it to make it credible as a TV show. Without So it was interesting to watch it with her because she was, I suppose she was doing what I'll do when I watch the D&D film. She was seeing all the nods and winks to the people who played the game, whereas I was completely blind to that because I've not played the game. But we both enjoyed it in, in equal measure because, yeah. It, the, the, and I think it's that, that the people making that were committed to making something. They didn't go, Oh, it's based on a video game. Oh, God, I'll well, just throw a lot of video game stuff in for the video game fans and it'll be, be fine, you know, it's a lot of old rules. Yeah. They hadn't approached it like that. They actually approached it very, very seriously. And it is quite a, it, it's quite an emotional show. There's bits in it where you think, oh, my God, this is, this is quite harrowing, you know, and you think, oh, it's based on a video game. <laughs> this is great, you know. But it, I think it is that. It's his commitment of the people in it and the people making it that makes all the yeah. difference. And that is why a lot of fantasy films of the past have failed because people are just not committed to it, are they? They just think it's yeah. all rubbish. No. rubbish for the kids, you know. It's, 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 it's a good point. Um, my son, who has no interest in uh, role-playing games, no matter how hard to try, he thought the D&D movie was great, much better than I did. Um, so I think for the filmmakers, that is achievement mm. unlocked, isn't it? He has yeah. no interest in it, in it whatsoever, but he thought it was a good adventure film. There's one um, false theme before we move on where they have a halfling in it and it uses all the false perspective thing. It reminded me of Little Britain, uh, Dennis Waterman thing. I fully <laughs> expected, I fully <laughs> expected a polystyrene hand to give him a cup, you know. Like, Give him a massive ice cream cone or something like that. <laughs> yeah. There you go, little halfling, have an ice cream. Oh, it's huge. <laughs> but apart, apart from that, they get away with it. They get away with it, I think. Yeah, it would have been okay. You've ruined it by putting a halfling in. Which is, to be honest, that, that is like most games of D&D, isn't it? They're okay until someone plays a halfling and then it's ruined a bit. Is there a cleric in it? Uh, there's a paladin. That doesn't count, does it? So they don't put no. a cleric in I'm right about them, Anna. I'm right. Everyone knows. Don't have you uh, have you got anything to add to the closing time chatter? Given well, that you're what, very grease, greasing the wheels of local democracy, <laughs> greasing the wheels. Like, mm. You know, um, I I've been very very busy, but I uh, I did have a, I had a thought. It's an interesting point of discussion that we can end on. What reading text box when you're running an adventure? I, at Virtual Grogmeet, we played a fantastic adventure with Steph, didn't we? Um, yeah. With Sorrow and Claire, Cthulhu Adventure. Really good. Highly recommended. Mm. I'll put a link in the show notes. Very good. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. Um, and Steph read bits of text, bo- text box. And, and you've done it as well, haven't we? We've been playing Conan. You've done a little bit of that as well, haven't you, recently? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know why. But I always feel when I'm running the game like I shouldn't do that, like it's cheating. But 
when you've done it and when Steph did it, actually it was really good because it, it added to the atmosphere. You know, I'm kind of guilty, I think, sometimes when I'm running a game of, of having these ideas in my head and as the game plays along, missing bits of atmos, you know, bits of atmosphere, bits of the smells or the sounds and that kind of thing. Whereas when you read a text box, actually you give the players a bit of that, don't you? But I've always, yeah. I always feel like I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. Don't read the text box. But I might, I might change, I might change my mind on that. I might, I might do that more often because when I played like the Conan game we've been playing, you've done it, Steph did it, and other other people have played with it as well recently, just by coincidence, have done it as well. And I'm sitting there listening to them and thinking, it's okay, this. You know, why do I think yeah. it's not okay? But it is okay. You, you tend to feel like, um, it, it, to be purist about it, you feel like you're putting it on rails because you, you put in a marker in. Time where you're almost delivering a checkpoint, so yeah. you you want to disguise that a little bit, don't you? You want to disguise the frame that uh, it's built on, and there's this aversion to do it because you feel like you're revealing that actually you've hit a point where you need to hit. Yeah, or, or it's like you're revealing the strings in a puppet show. Yeah, right? you show the strings, or you've a little glimpse backstage because you're re- you're just reading a bit of text, but. Yeah, but I, I I've been doing it for the Conan thing. I do. I normally paraphrase, but they are quite well written. The ones for this yeah. um, the, the the Conan s- uh, scenario that we're doing, um, and they are ev- evocative. And if I, I think I think sometimes when you uh, paraphrase and improvise around some of that box text, you diminish it a little because yeah, that's what I mean. That's, that's my point. That I. I yeah, you tend to kind of think, well, I won't read it verbatim, but then you perhaps miss little subtle subtle things, subtle elements of description that are quite evocative for the players. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Box text or not box text? That's yeah, a discussion, a bit, isn't I, it? I, yeah. I imagine controversial viewing, but I must admit I'm inclined to think there are times, maybe not all the time, but there are times when it's, not such a bad thing. It's actually quite a good thing because I think it it can frame it comes a back scene. to that. It comes it comes back, doesn't it, to that kind of um, I don't know pride that you know that seems like a that's like a basic role playing. That's a a basic D and D approach. I am advanced, <laughs> and as an advanced <laughs> operator. Yeah. I yeah. elevate myself above the box text and able to freeform yeah. around these ideas. And yeah. uh, I think uh, I'm guilty of that. Snobbery, I think it's called, isn't it? I think, I think that's what uh, it's Yeah, I think it is a bit of that. I suppose it's like the idea that of reading a speech, apparently not reading it, you know, like just a freeform, oh, stand up and give an inspiring speech or a comical or witty speech, whereas someone who reads a witty speech somewhere is not not quite the same thing but i don't think but that's that's the parallel in your head or parallel in my head that you should just be hey i'm a games master i'm just imaginative and i can just go with it yeah but it's not quite like that when you're running the game it's not quite the same as as giving a speech is it or or something like that or a presentation it's not quite the same reading a bit of text it it's good for the players because what i've realized is quite like listening to them like listening to it and thinking Oh, yeah, it's given me a bit of centre sights and sounds, you know. In Steph's game, you know, the woods we were in and the stuff that was going on, it was great because it brought it alive in a way, you know. 
So it's yeah. that odd, it's that odd split, isn't it? Of as a games master, I think I don't read I don't read text verbatim, but when I'm a player, I quite like it. I think it's good. It, yeah. it works, you know. It brings brings things alive and that kind of yeah. thing. You just sit by, listen to what's going. Oh yeah, okay, right. Yeah, I know where we are and what's going on. That kind of thing. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of interesting. Just recently, I've, I've just played in quite a few games where people have done that. It just made me think about it a bit more, you know, consider it a bit more. Yeah, I think it just comes back to that thing: is when you're playing, um, whether you read box text or not, uh, you don't read box text. Uh, it's keeping in mind the idea that to frame a scene is so important to make sure that everybody is aware of what they're facing, some of the evocative stuff around it, just to get those important details so um, they can locate themselves and know what actions are possible from mm. that point. So whether you're reading box text or not, I think I think you're right. I think it is just a, an essential bit of role-playing, that skill of uh, framing what's going on right at the pit start of it. I, I'll let you go. And uh, we've got the we've got through it, Blythe. We've managed to do it. We've managed to do this as a, a phone call. Curse the we, curse, the curse of stuff from tears. It is, isn't it? You're saying that, I think, when you listen to the recording back, it'd be blank. Oh, it'd be the curse. Yeah, something like that. It's it some kind of safe of plot, isn't it, to to prevent us from doing it? <laughs> the worms, the worms are everywhere. <laughs> See you later, bye then. Goodbye. The Save Rap podcast covers old school gaming and the modern games inspired by them. Listen in to hear about games from the 70s and 80s as well as their modern descendants. You can download episodes wherever podcasts are found on iTunes, Google, and other fine podcast distributors. You should also check them out on saferhalf.com or email them at saferhalfpodcast at gmail.com. Don't go hunting for those second-hand Star Frontiers stuff because it's available online at a reasonable price and print-on-demand. There are really interesting modules. If you're a fan of the cartography of Jeff Wingate, a.k.a. Paul Rouse, whose work appeared in Imagine magazine, then I really recommend Bugs in the System and Dark Side of the Moon, as they both feature some of his best work. Remember to head to the Discord channel and look for the Grog Tank, which features Wayne Peters' thread, reading through old issues of Imagine magazine, month by month. Thanks to Wayne for his submission to Appendix G. If you'd like to your entry and uh, for you to appear on an episode, then please let me know. Thank you for all the support that continues to come our way. Some new people have discovered us recently, which is always encouraging. If you have recently discovered the Grog Pod, then please pass it on. The best thing to keep this show on the road is to let people know about it. Thanks to the retweets, the Mastodon, whatever you do on there, and uh, substacking, the Facebooking, and reviewing, doing your bit to find fellow Grog Squadders who don't realise that they're Grog Squadders yet. Thanks to all the patrons, old and new, that have contributed to a tip jar to encourage us to continue. When Phil the IT guy stops us in our tracks, the thought of our patrons ensures that we start the engine up again. 
even on those cold morning hill starts. And we've had some new patrons joining us in 2023. Welcome to the Armchair Adventurers, to Thomas McGrenery, Ego Orb, and James L. Stewart. For those who join us at the sofa so good level and above, we like to roll on a virtual table to give them a virtual gift, apparently at random. And uh, this time we're looking at Star Frontiers equipment. So let me get the cursed dice cup and uh, roll here. Okay, here it goes. Uh, first up is Jean-Pierre Oliver. And he gets a doze grenade. Be careful how you throw it. Next up is George Poles. I know George because he played in Planescape with me recently and had an audition plan to move the gate to the Modrons. Here we go. Let's uh, roll on here. And George, you get a CAS, a computerized analysis scanner. There you go. Uh, next up is Aaron Yarborough and he gets a needler gun. Finally, John Ozaway. And again, I've played with uh, John recently, uh, a Star Wars game um, where I played an Ewok, a rather scruffy Ewok who uh, was covered in dung for most of it. Anyway, here we go. Uh, John, you get a gyrojet rifle, a.k.a. a cone rifle. Uh, thanks all. Playing us out this time is another composition by Dirk Jr. And his guys as Amari. It's a suitably electronica space age feeling piece named Helix. Next time we'll be talking to John Cohen of Tale of the Manticore and going to the pub with our wigs on for Thunder Phase. Until then, adios amigos. <laughs>